Alright, welcome back to Homer's Iliad 2019 Lecture 17 on Books 10 Part 2 and 11 Part 1. Let's recall where it was that we were when we first, when we left off last time. So, <clears throat> it was the case that in Book 9 an embassy was sent to Agelaus. The embassy was sent by Agamemnon to Agelaus because the Achaeans had just received their first ever defeat. And so Agamemnon, knowing that his name was on the line, put his and his reputation for all time, having ten times more troops than the Trojans, as well as access to Achilles, who's essentially like Heracles, like the strongest fighter who is in existence at that time. If he loses this battle, he will be humiliated, not only during his lifetime, but for all time. So what did he do? He sent an embassy back to Achilles, Phoenix, Ias the Greater, and Odysseus, to try and convince him to return to battle with countless gifts and Appeals to pity, appeals to honor, appeals to his father, appeals to ancient stories about Meliagoras and the Caledonian boar, uh, infinite seemingly seeming appeals, and yet still Achilles did not come back. Then, book 10, we're still in the middle of the night. Achilles has not returned. There is a battle the next day. The battle the next day will determine the fate of the Achaeans. In fact, they created a wall and a uh, pit of spikes. The idea being that the Achaeans are in a bad situation and that if they do not do something now, they may very well die the next day and lose this war that they've been fighting for almost 10 years because of their own bad decisions. So what do they decide to do? They decide to send a spy out into the night after uh, having a late night council session where Nestor makes this suggestion. Who versus volunteers? Who we would expect? The person who's coming up in the war, who's trying to differentiate himself from his father Tidius, that is Diomedes. But he backs off that just a little bit. He doesn't want to go alone. He says two heads are better one than one because, well, one set of eyes can look forward, one can set can look backwards, and he asks for Odysseus. Something just interesting to note about Odysseus and Diomedes is they will do several tasks together like this. They will do this together. They will steal the Palladium together. According to some accounts, they go to get Neoptolemus uh, together as well. And um, very famously, they will be in the Inferno Book 26 uh, amongst the deceitful calen, uh, excuse me, counselors sharing a flame together. And so, these two are two peas in a pod, two huh, sort of sticks in a flame. In any case, Hector and the Trojans, they also have a late night council session. They are out on the Trojan plain. It is the first time they have ever camped outside of Troy. They are in, in an offensive position against the Achaeans for the first ever time. They are very excited. And so, Hector calls council meeting. During this council meeting, we observe that he makes some mistakes. He offers uh, who would take upon him this work and bring it to fulfillment for a huge price? The reward will be one that will suffice him. Uh, book 10, lines 303 to 304. The idea being that he doesn't offer glory first and foremost. He looks for somebody who's acquisitive, avaricious, greedy. And the person who volunteers is Dolan. And there are several indicators that uh, Homer gives us to indicate that Dolan is an unworthy or uh, has something wanting as a a candidate to be a spy. And what are those reasons? Well, the first that is given is that his physical looks are ugly. He is evil looking, ugly looking, just like Thersides was described as being the worst of the Achaeans as well as the ugliest of the Achaeans. The idea being that the uglier you were, the worse you were in ancient times. It's often also why even in Disney movies, uh, particularly like Snow White, for example, um, antagonists are represented as ugly in some way, disfigured in some way. Scar, obviously, and the Lion King with the scar, um, and yeah, so we, that's a different course, but we talk about that at some point. And in any case, Dolan also has a second indicator. He has five sisters. The idea is that he's unmanly, unmasculine, has not had people to roughhouse with growing up in a warlike culture, like the culture of the ancient Achaeans and Trojans, where they go to war every spring, seemingly every year for 10 years. In this case, 
it, it is a virtue to be more masculine, stronger, physical. Dolan does not seem to be such a person. Even though that doesn't seem to be something that might affect his ability to be a spy, that does uh, that is supposed to affect our judgment. That's why Homer includes that piece of detail. And the last detail he gives, which shows us uh, the worst part of him, besides his family, heritage, his siblings, uh, and their gender, and his looks, is his choice making. What he requests from Hector, besides the glory of doing something great, besides the reward that's initially offered, is he requests the horses and chariot of Achilleus. And why is that crazy? Well, A, who's going to kill Achilleus? Certainly not him. B, who deserves to receive Achilleus' horses and chariot if he dies? Dolon? Or someone like Hector or Prime? Certainly not um, uh, um, Dolon. And in fact, when he gets caught by Ulysses, or excuse me, Odysseus and Diomedes, Ulysses is Odysseus's um, Roman name, or excuse me, yes, Roman name, and that's what I've been using as I've lectured on him in the Inferno course. I actually lectured on him today, interestingly enough. Um, <clears throat> Ulysses, Odysseus will smile at Dolon, and he will say, oh, that's quite a gift that you asked for. You know it is only the case that Automedon, the charioteer, as well as Achilleus, uh, they're the only people that can actually control those horses, very similar to Apollo and his chariot and horses in the tragic story of Phaethon, which uh, I'll tell you at least next year when we get into the Inferno. In any case, Hector agrees to send Dolan out. He does not send him out with a second person. This is another mistake. Um, notice that the Trojans often strategically make mistakes. They do not create a, a defensive perimeter around their camp. They can't stoop. They do not create a spike pit around their camp. They can't stoop. They do not have sentries watching over their camp. They can't stoop. When they send out spies, they pick spies based on not their greed or avarice, but their ability to spy, their ability as men. Um, also, notice that they can't send out two rather than one. Again, uh, we will notice the uh, Trojans make several strategic mistakes, particularly Hector not following the strategic advice of Pulidamus um, uh, upcoming, uh, particularly when Pulidamus tells him after Achilles returns to the fighting that um, the Trojans, in order to prevent death and to all of them, should get back into Troy because Achilles is like a force of nature, like a boulder tumbling down a hill, and they are the goats on that hill waiting to be struck. Um, in any case, this is just another instance of the Trojans not uh, putting the best strategy in place, not being as strategically savvy as the Achaeans. Again, Athena seems to be with the Achaeans. It's not with the Trojans. Now, out into the night. Odysseus hears Dolon. He and Diomedes let him pass, and then they get behind him to force him towards the Achaean camp. This is marked for several reasons. The first reason is this. If they get behind Dolon, then... What, uh, which direction can Dolan flee to? Well, if he runs forward, the direction he's going, he'll go towards the Achaean camp, he'll be caught by the sentries, um, and then uh, tortured and killed, most likely, uh, after being squeezed for information. But if he turns backwards, he'll run into Diomedes and Odysseus. Well, it's one on two then. That means he'll be captured, probably tortured and killed too. The second Odysseus and Diomedes get behind Dolan, Dolan is already dead. And so... When he first hears somebody behind him, Dolan assumes, because it comes from the direction of his camp, that it is a Trojan. Unfortunately, it is not a Trojan for him. It is Diomedes and Odysseus. It is his death coming for him. Diomedes throws a missile, a, uh, a spear, over the right shoulder of Dolan. It sticks in the ground. And just as the spear shakes, so does Dolan shake. Very similar to Paris in Book 3 when he's turned green with fear, seeing the last. Dolan shakes with fear, begs for his life. And his teeth are chattering, he breaks into tears, asks to be taken alive, and Odysseus very famously says this, Do not fear, 
And let no thought of death be upon you. I really like that expression. I want you to hear it one more time. Do not fear and let no thought of death be upon you. Book 10, line 383. When you listen to that, when you hear it, you probably hear, we will not kill you. But if you listen very closely, let no thought of death be upon you. All Odysseus is saying is, don't think about your death, your upcoming death, your impending doom. Tell me what it is I need to know. And Odysseus asks a series of questions here, asking about the location of the Trojan camps, or uh, the specific Trojan contingents. Uh, where are they? Where is Hector? Is he camped outside there? Is his armor with him? Um, he wants a full-scale schematic picture of each part of the Trojan contingent, where they are, where their captains are, so that with this information, if possible, the Achaeans can possibly win the day the next day. Or possibly even, they might be able to do some damage tonight. So let's look into this. Dolon reveals everything. The Trojans themselves have a small guard detail, but their allies do not. So recall, there's not a perimeter set around all of the Trojans. Well, there's several allies to the Trojans that are out then on a undefended and exposed out on the Trojan Plain. They are the Carians, the Paeonians, the Leleges, the Calconians, the Pelasgians, the Lycians, the Phrygians, the Mycians, the Myonians, and singled out by Dolon as having just arrived. And separate from the rest are the Thracians, led by King Rasos, who have the finest horses around. Now, a bit of mythology underlying this story. Homer does not necessarily agree with this, but there is a very famous story, and there are several stories like this, that if this does not happen, Troy will never fall. If the Palladium never leaves Troy, Troy will never fall. If Philoctetes does not show up to Troy, Troy will never fall. If the horses of Rasos drink a single drop of water from the river Scamandros called Xanthos by the gods, Troy will not fall. Well, Rasos and the Thracians have arrived tonight. All they have to do is go water their horses the next day, and Troy will never fall. Well... Unfortunately, they will never get there again. Another one of these moments within the context of the Iliad where if something had just gone a slightly different way, perhaps everything would have been different. And in any case, it will not be the case that these horses get to drink from that water for the, for the following reason. After Dolan, well, just before we get there, after Dolan has received this information, he's given the goal of the information. He says, take me back to the ships. Diomedes responds after looking darkly, that they would have to kill Dolon eventually. So he cuts off Dolon's head while he's still speaking. So let me read that to you very quickly. Book 10, lines 446 to 453 or so. It'll just take me about one moment to get there. I'm one page away now. Okay. But powerful Diomedes looked darkly at him and spoke then, Do not, Dolon, have in mind any thought of escape. Now you have got in our hands, though you brought us an excellent message. For if we let you get away now, or set you free, later you will come back again to the fast ships of the Achaeans, either to spy on us once more, or to fight strongly with us. This is, of course, the paradox of being a, a traitor, right? Once you have betrayed your own people, what is the guarantee that you will not betray these new people whom you do not know as well? Well, there is no guarantee, so the only way to deal with a traitor after they have betrayed the information useful to one in order to prevent them from then betraying you and uh, committing the same act against you that... They did against the people that they were more loyal to, ostensibly speaking, uh, uh, one would imagine anyway, is to get rid of that traitor, which is why I suppose the idea is that it is best not to betray whom you are loyal to, even if it will cost your life, because it is better to sacrifice your life 
than the lives of those who you were loyal to. It's sort of like the opposite of sacrifice. In fact, we'll see this uh, borne out very nicely by a baritor called Jean Paulo in Circle 8, Sub-Circle 5, amongst the Malabranche in Canto 22 of the Inferno next year. And so, just to finish this quote, But if beaten down under my hands you lose your life now, then you will never more be an affliction upon the Argives. He spoke, and the man was trying to reach his chin with a strong hand and cling and supplicate him, but he struck the middle of his neck with a sweep of the sword and slashed clean through both tendons, and Dolon's head, still speaking, dropped in the dust. They took off his cap of Martin's hide from his head and stripped also off the wolf's pelt and the back-strung bow, the long spear. Brilliant Odysseus held these up to Athena, the spoiler, high in his hand, and spoke a word and prayed to Athena, Hail, goddess, these are yours. To you first of all the immortals on Olympus, we will give your due share. Only goddess, one, or once again, to where the Phrygians sleep and their horses. It is time to get to killing. Alright, in the Thracian camp, Diomedes goes around and kills 12 men. In fact, he is described very famously, I should read this to you too, line 496 in book 10, as being like a bad dream, not a dream, though, Diomedes, reading that to you. Now, but when the son of Tidius came to the king, and this was the thirteenth man, he stripped the sweetness of life from him as he lay heavily breathing, since a bad dream stood by his head in the night. No dream, but Aeneas his son, by device of Athena. Meanwhile, patient Odysseus was untying the single-foot horses and pulling them together with the reins, and drove them from the confusion and whipped them, with his bow, since he had not noticed nor taken in his hand the glittering whip that was in the elaborate chariot. He whistled to brilliant Diomedes as a signal to him. So, okay, what's happening? What is happening is this. Is that while Odysseus goes, or while Diomedes goes about and kills Thracians, he kills 12 of them, not the entirety of them, and then King Rasos, the 13th of them, Odysseus is taking the horses of King Rasos. Why? Well, because these are very excellent horses, and it's like stealing the very nice cars of the people that you have killed because they have no use for them afterwards anyway. And um, that, is, uh, that is part of the reason. These are spoils of war. One of the other reasons that Odysseus in particular is move, but something else Odysseus is doing is he is moving the bodies of the dead men out of the way of the horses. Why? Well, it's the first day that the horses have been there at war, and so they are not yet used to the presence of dead bodies. If they were to step on one, they might become spooked. They might then neigh and rear up throw Odysseus and uh, Diomedes in the chariot off, and uh, then wake up the rest of the Thracians, which would then lead to the death of Odysseus and Diomedes, and lead to Odysseus not getting the information from Dolon back to the Achaeans so that they can possibly do better in the battle on the next day. That said, they do everything right, but Apollo still wakes up Hippocon, a chase is given, but Odysseus and Diomedes make it back to the Achaean camp. They are welcomed by Nestor, and this self-contained episode is precisely because of its coherent middle, beginning, and end. Sometimes considered an interpolation, which is a story about the Iliad that just got thrown in the middle, about in, uh, about in the middle of the Iliad, because of course the uh, books were probably where scrolls ended, not actually set by Homer when he would first sing this, or the collection of poets that we call Homer when they first sang this. Um, and so this is essentially the end of the first half of the Iliad. So let's begin the second half with book. 11, though, numerically, of course, it is not the second half. Hate stands on the top of Odysseus's ship. And recall that Odysseus's ship is in the middle of the line of ships on the beach at Troy. Highest Graders is on one end. It will uh, uh, soon, that is the end, actually, closer to the gate, which H Hector will break through with a rock in the coming books. 
and where IS the greater ships are, uh, uh, one of which will, in fact, or multiple, it's either one or multiple have flames touch them. I don't think they actually get burned, but Hector gets very close to burning the ships down. In any case, Achilleus's ships are on the other end. So IS the greaters are on one end, Achilleus's are on the other. They're actually the farthest from where the battle is taking place, which makes sense because he is the farthest removed from all the characters. He, enjoying his valor and loneliness as Nestor, described him as being very Luciferian right now. What does it mean to even have valor if you are uh, alone and having it? It's like being on the moon and being the greatest person there. Well, you're the only person there, um, even if you would have been the greatest person somewhere else. Also, uh, reminds me a bit of a character from the Watchmen, uh, the Superman-type character. Um, Doctor, I forget what his name is. I'm not a big fan of that uh, uh, series, though the new series might be good. Doctor Adam, or whatever he's called, he goes to the moon at some point. That's sort of like what Achilleus is here doing. In any case, hate is on this middle ship, this Odysseus ship. This means that a battle is about to happen, and violence is going to be given into. And Agamemnon is described as army, and he has three serpents on his neck, and there's a gorgon head on his shield, and he has two horns on his helmet, and it's plumed. And this, there, there's a three-headed snake with three heads turned back towards near the gorgon, and which sort of is like an Ouroboros, which is a, a snake eating its own tail. And so there are all these images of threat on Agamemnon, and he is supposed to look threatening. And so uh, there's going to be a very threatening battle. And in fact, Agamemnon is going to have his Aristea, which is a period of preeminence in battle based on the Greek word Aristos, which means best. There's a political system based on that called an aristocracy, which often corrupts to an oligarchy, which is ruled by the few. Um, and some people claim uh, that we have an aristocracy to some degree, um, though it would be more like a plutocracy, where money equals speech. In any case, that's just something that's said. Uh, Zeus, then, to prefigure just how bloody this battle is going to be, uh, has thunder crash around this, this snake-covered looking man, and also has blood dew rain from the heavens. It is an ominous morning. Many people are going to die. In fact, many Achaeans are going to be injured. Five of them. Agamemnon, Odysseus, Diomedes, Eurypolis, and Machaon. And in fact, the tide of battle will start well for the Achaeans, with Agamemnon killing several Trojans, including one named Hippolychus, who will kick like a log down <laughs> the fray of the battle, which uh, is humorous, though vulgar. And, uh, but after Agamemnon does so well with his Aristea, he will be injured. And by a man named Koan, uh, one of the sons of Antenor, in response to the killing of Iphidamus, his brother. And um, then Hector will have his Herostea and will totally turn the tide of battle. In fact, and this is something we'll see multiple times, the Achaeans will push the Trojans all the way back to their wall, which uh, seemingly is physically impossible, just to be pushed all the way back to and through their wall. So, a couple um, facts. Hector and his captains in response to uh, Agamemnon, in parallel to Agamemnon, also prepare to fight. Pulidamus, as I told you, is his on-field advisor. Uh, Pulidamus is to Hector what Antidor is to Priam, what Nestor is to Agamemnon. He's a wise counselor that gives good advice, though unlike Agamemnon with Nestor, <coughs> excuse me, it will often be the case that Pulidamus, uh, his advice will not be followed by Hector. Just like the example I gave earlier where I said that Hector obviously will not take the advice to move the Trojan camp back inside the walls of Troy after Achilles returns, and that will cost him his life. Aeneas is also amongst him, Antinor's three sons, Polybus, Agenor, and Achamus. Agenor we'll see, we won't really see the other ones very much, and Hector will be shining amongst the foremost and the backmost, and he will break through the Achaean wall today and directly engage with Aeneas the Greater 
again. So the battle begins. And the Achaeans and Trojans fight like wolves, which means they fight ferociously. Neither side panics. Neither side should panic. The Trojans don't need to panic because they're confident and they're pushing towards the Achaeans. And the Achaeans cannot panic because if they panic, where do they go? Well, they're, they're pushed back uh, along the shores. They, the only place to go is into the water and into death. And even if they try and escape to their ships, which is a point that Odysseus will eventually make, uh, what is to keep the Trojans from killing them, sending volleys of missiles, uh, which are spears and rocks, at them while they are attempting to escape? They're, no. If they panic, they will die. They cannot afford to panic. In any case, none of the other gods attend this slaughter. Why? Well, remember that the other gods are angry at Zeus because he seems, A, to be favoring the Trojans, and B, he gave that golden rope analogy where he said, mm, uh, actually, you are not going to be helping on the battlefield anymore because I can see the workings of fate. I've made an agreement with Hera. I'm going to make sure that all this happens uh, correctly. And so he's off glorying in the pride of his strength, very similar to how Ares gloried in the pride of his strength after he was excoriated by Zeus, being called a duplicitous, double-faced liar at the end, at the end of Book 5 after complaining about being injured by a guy. In any case, Agamemnon has his Aristea again. That's defined as a period of excellence in battle. He kills several Trojans. Oileus, he makes his brain splatter forth. Kills two sons of Priam, one illegitimate, Esos, one legitimate, Antiphos, and then kills two sons of Antimachus, Pisantros and Hippolochus. The reason why he kills them rather than sparing them, besides the fact that he's been rather aggressive lately and hasn't been taking prisoners, recall that he did not say the hand of Menelaus earlier on, is that this the father, Antimachus, of Pisandros and Hippolochus had apparently given evil counsel to um, kill Menelaus and Odysseus when they first came to Troy as envoys. That would have been a breaking of the Holy Xenia, just as Paris is taking of Helen, obviously was a breaking of the Holy Xenia, that's the guest-host relationship. Uh, and just because of the fact that their father even suggested this, Agamemnon executes uh, his sons. And so, Hippolochus sprang away. This is Book 11, lines 145 to 148. But Atreides killed him, dismounted, cutting away his arms with the sword stroke free of the shoulder and sent him spinning like a log down the battle. So he, he, uh, he, he takes off, he hews off one arm, hews off the other one. This guy no longer has arms. He's sort of like a log, very straight and vertical. And he gets kicked, sort of like this is Sparta, though that, of course, comes much later. Um, and it is a fanciful representation of what actually happened in um, Thucydides, uh, or sorry, not Thucydides, Herodotus, because it's Pergamore, of course. Um, and, uh, well, Hippolochus gets uh, kicked like a log down the battle. In any case, the Trojans then begin to retreat, but only as far as past the fig tree uh, at near the sky and gates. Agamemnon's grim work is described as, or he is described as having invincible hands spattered with bloody filth. He responds as not only as, uh, he looks very like Zeus in this moment. He is embodying justice and uh, uh, um, keeping the Zinnia honored. He is also um, described as having invincible hands, or an Aristea. We recall that uh, Zeus described himself in, at the end of book one, when talking to Hera about spousal abuse, as himself having um, unconquerable hands. Though a big difference between Agamemnon and Zeus is that obviously Agamemnon is mortal and he can be injured, and when he is injured, Hector will be allowed to enter the battle because Zeus sends down a messenger Iris to Hector, who appears to him not as Iris, but in a different form, who says, do not enter the battle until Hector is injured. The reason being that if Hector enters the battle, while Agamemnon is having his Aristea with his invincible hands covered in blood, Agamemnon will certainly kill Hector. And keep in mind that you do observe Agamemnon here fighting. This does seem to be the first time that he has fought because, uh, um, at least, excuse me, there was the battle, the, the last battle that was just lost, 
This is one of the first times he has fought because recall Achilles when he was excoriating, lambasting, attempting to uh, insult Agamemnon in book one, he said, you never fight. You just wait for all the gifts. And so um, you just make us all fight and then sit back and reap the spoils. Well, Agamemnon is showing that he can fight here and he is doing his very best and he is leading his troops. He looks very heroic. He looks very much like a leader at this moment. Tell me now, you muses, who have your homes on Olympus, who was the first to come forth and stand against Agamemnon of the very Trojans or their renowned companions in battle? Okay, this is going to be the beginning of the end. After the invocation to the Muse, the second invocation to the Muse, Book 11 rather than Book 1, when we last saw it, seeing Muse anger of Peleus' son Achilles, line 1, he kills Iphidamus. And Iphidamus had just wed, and he was the son of Antenor, and it says that he had no delight of his wife. Uh, the, the reason why Homer seems to indicate or give certain small details about somebody's life, like the down has just appeared on their face, meaning that they just started to grow a beard, meaning that they're young, or that somebody just married. So these people are not just pure warriors. They have lives outside of battle. And so this man was apparently loved by a woman. He, and because of this war, he's cut down before he ever becomes a father, gets to raise a child. He, it's, uh, Homer is highlighting the tragedy of war. As glorious as it can be, as wonderful a use of time as it can be to attain more Garros, Kleos, and Time. It is certainly the case that you do miss out on very important things. Uh, that will be a major theme in the Odyssey. And just sorrow that follows such an action like this. It's almost as if war is uh, a pure, um, is an institution of pure passion without foresight. And there are elements of that interpretation included within Homer. He does not seem to be purely war positive nor war negative. He seems to be war descriptive. And so this is part of the description of war, the lives that people leave in order to go to war that they never return to. And so, after Iphidamus is killed, his older brother, the eldest son of Antinor's son, perceives this. His name is Koan. His spear strikes with the wind speed, and he stabs Agamemnon beneath the elbow. It must have been the left elbow. Achaeans would hold uh, shields with the left hand, swords with the right hand, or spears with the right hand, or rocks with the right hand. Well, Koan, eldest son of Antinor, stabs Agamemnon beneath the elbow. Agamemnon then kills him. He cuts off his head over his brother. Um, and then even after that, even with this injury, very much like Diomedes in Book 5, even without the help of Athena, he keeps fighting and flinging stones until the injury starts to get him cold and the pain hits him between lines 261 to 265 or so. Well, finally, Agamemnon has to retreat to heal. He summons his charioteer and encourages the men to keep fighting in his absence. Um, during this time, however, the, the tide of the battle is definitely going to change. Hector sees his chance. Agamemnon has left the battlefield. This is his moment. This is the moment he was told by the gods would be his moment. And so he summons to him the Trojans. He will lead their contingent along one flank. The Lycans, they will be led by the Sarpedon, or by Sarpedon, the Sarpedon. And the Dardanians will be led by Aeneas. He tells them to assault in a great voice, and then has his own arrow stay aligned 303 or so. Hector, therefore, counseled by Zeus through Iris, launches a full-out assault that will totally, totally turn the tide of battle and lead to um, a major event between Patroclus and Nestor, and between Patroclus and Achilles, and eventually to Achilles. The beginning of the end has started now.